0: Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Sanctions on Russia are definitely working. Sure, the ruble might be stronger now than before the war in Ukraine, but ignore that. And that painful, rising inflation in the West has nothing to do with the sanctions. As for the Global South countries refusing to join in on those anti-Russia sanctions, their silly leaders have either been manipulated by Kremlin propaganda or their nefarious authoritarian Putinists. There's no other explanation. And rising global food insecurity, that too is Russia's fault. Sanctions on one of the world's biggest producers of gas, fertilizer, and grain is totally unrelated. Also, the U.S. is a pristine democracy. China and all America's other adversaries are not. If you disagree with any of this, you might be part of a russian influence disinformation operation, possibly even Chinese-influenced. At least that's what corporate media, weapons-funded think tanks, and Western officials are telling us. But is any of it actually true? Here to discuss the sanctions blowback on the West, as well as the narrative management surrounding it, is Arnaud Bertrand, a commentator on economics and geopolitics based in Shanghai. Arnaud, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to speak to you about all these very interesting topics. I guess a good place to start is perhaps the piece that you wrote for tablet, which has kind of been making the rounds. It's received, people have been discussing it. It's received a little bit of, you know, controversy as well. It's called, is America the real victim of anti-Russia sanctions? And of course, I'll link to it in the description to this video. But in this piece, you argue that by trying to isolate Russia, and actually, China as well, but you know mostly Russia here in the case of the war with Ukraine, the West may actually be isolating itself. So can you elaborate a bit on what you meant by that?
1: Sure um, so first of all, it's interesting to look at this in terms of uh, population uh, because the west on in the West I include countries that always align with the West, like uh, Japan or South Korea, for instance. Uh, they collectively represent only about 13% of the world's population. Uh, China and Russia together is, um, is is 20%. So you know uh, all of those together is sorry 3%. So it leaves uh, about two thirds uh, of the world population. Um, in those two-thirds, we have um, absolutely major countries like, uh, you know, India, Brazil, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and so on, and so on and so forth. Um, and what are those countries doing? Are they siding with the West uh, on their crossing on their crusade against uh, Russia and China? Well, a good indication is uh, which of those countries followed the West in applying the, the sanctions on Russia. And the answer is virtually none of them. Um, on, same thing with China. We, we had uh, another sign of this. Uh, I think it was two days ago when the N- Netherlands led a joint statement at the UN on the human rights situation in, in Xinjiang. We had uh, only 47 uh, signatories uh, among 193 uh, member states at, at the UN. And again, almost exclusively Western countries with with a few rare exceptions, but India didn't sign, Brazil didn't sign, South Africa didn't sign and quite tellingly, not a single Muslim country uh, signed except for Albania, uh, but it's in Europe, so I guess it doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> In fact, uh Muslim countries are vocal supporters of China on the Xinjiang question. Uh, for instance, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which gathers all the Muslim states, and is the second largest international organization after the UN, even adopted a resolution which, uh, uh, I quote, commands uh, China for its treatment of Muslims. So uh, anyhow, what this all shows is that in terms of population, the West is in fact a relatively isolated minority that really only speaks for for itself. It's not followed uh, by a huge majority of of the planet. And then looking at it in economic terms, uh, that's also interesting. Look at what the sanctions on Russia are doing, uh, for instance, on gas prices. They are skyrocketing in the West. uh, But interestingly, they are not skyrocketing everywhere. While the West today pays $120 a, a barrel for oil, India, for instance, is securing oil at $75 a barrel uh, with Russia. So concretely, what this means is that the West is making itself less competitive uh, versus some of, the, some of its, um, you know, uh, world competitors. Uh, which, concretely, that means they're isolating themselves economically by making themselves uh, less competitive. And it's the same dynamic with China. Uh, the U.S. keeps applying sanctions on Chinese companies for various reasons. So Huawei, because it's supposedly a security threat, uh, HIC vision because it supplies surveillance cameras in Xinjiang, and so on and so forth. But what this does is that bit by bit Western companies are cutting themselves off from key Chinese suppliers on key technologies like like 5G. And again, this comes at a cost. It makes them less competitive because other companies in the rest of the world don't have such limitations. And again, in effect, this increasingly isolates them economically from, from the rest of the world.
0: But you also made this really amazing, uh, point in your piece as well. And I'm just going to quote you here. You write, seldom has the West so grossly misjudged an economy's global significance. And then you go on to detail how Russia and China are able to survive these, this Western economic warfare. Because unlike Western countries, China and Russia are these like commodities powerhouses with economies that are actually far, uh, that have a way higher value than the West even understands, uh, because of the sorts of things that they produce. Well, the West, on the other hand, the value of many of these Western economies is so inflated because they're so heavy on, you know, the tech and finance sectors and the service sector, whereas Russia and China are producing things that you need, you know, for shelter, you know, or that Mm -hmm. you need for, uh, to, to actually like fuel an economy, literally oil and gas in the case of Russia or things that you need to eat like wheat and grain in the in the case of Russia. So can you maybe explain the true value of economies like Russia and China and how, you know, even unlike countries like Iran or Venezuela, like you can't just cut them off so easily from the global supply chain?
1: Um, sure. So, first of all, credit where credit is due. My, my article is largely based on the thoughts of a French economist called uh, Jacques Sapir, who is a very renowned specialist of the Russian economy. Uh, I should precise that I'm not myself uh, an economist. So, so what Sapir says is that why we used to think of, of Russia as a small, irrelevant economy, uh, you know, many people used to say that uh, it had the, um, the size of like Italy or Spain. Uh, well, we totally misjudged the, the size of the Russian economy. On and, and for appear, one big reason for this is, for this miscalculation is exchange rates. Uh, so, if you compare Russia's uh, GDP by simply converting it uh, from rubbers into US dollars, you indeed get an economy the size of Spain's. Uh, but such such a comparison makes no sense without uh, adju- adjusting for purchase power parity P, the famous PPP uh, which most economists agree uh, is the only sensible way to uh, to compare two economies and When you measure Russia's GDP based on PPP when you do that adjustment uh it's clear that Russia's economy is actually more like the size of of germany's uh, so already it's not it's not uh, spain or or Italy. But then there is something else, like you were saying in your question. Um, What's on things, and, uh, and I agree with him. Uh, the service sector today is uh, very much overvalued compared with the um, industrial sectors and commodities like oil, gas, copper, agricultural products, and so on and so forth. Uh, this makes intuitive sense. Uh, when push comes to shove, we know there is much more value in providing people with the things that they really need to survive, like food and energy, uh, than there is in services like Netflix or, you know, spending, <laughs> <Right>. a, <laughs> spending a weekend in the country. So, you know, I like Game of Thrones, but, uh, if I have the choice between watching it or starving, uh, it's pretty clear why <laughs> I would choose, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so, so if we reduce the proportional importance of services in the global economy, Sapir says that the Russia's economy is in fact, um, uh, vastly larger than, than, than Germany and, uh, represents maybe five or six percent of the world's economy. So, um, so that there was a, a, huge misunderstanding of the, of the size of the Russian economy. And, and for fun, well, fun, uh, what I did is I applied the same reasoning to the Chinese economy uh so first of all few people know that uh, w- when you correct for ppp uh china's economy is already uh, already overtook the us um 6 years ago and um, now it's already almost 20% larger than the us And um, wow. this gets even more dramatic when you do that adjustment for the the share of the service sector versus the um industrial commodities sector uh, the US is a service-based economy, but China, even more than Russia, is all about manufacturing and industry. And when you adjust for this, it's likely that the Chinese economy is in fact as much as 50 or maybe even 60% uh, bigger than the US today. So, yes, those two economies are in fact uh, very large and, uh, and, and they've become like real linchpins to the world economy. So it's a whole different ballgame from, uh, say, like Venezuela or Iran.
0: Yeah, and, you know, uh, just to add to some of what you're saying, even, you know, we saw today that Bloomberg, well, today that we're recording, that Bloomberg was reporting that White House officials are privately admitting that what they're calling collateral damage from their own sanctions has had this way wider impact than they expected. Uh, particularly the sanctioning of food and energy, which they thought for some reason would have minimal effect on inflation. But of course we see inflation in the US, which was already rising is now kind of becoming out of control and is threatening to cause some sort of recession. But you also noted in your piece that the US-led West today is actually in a weaker position than it was during the first Cold War, you know, back in the 50s and so on. Why is that? Why is it in a weaker position today?
1: Well, at the start of the first Cold War, the, the US was uh, very much the manufacturing behemoth uh, of the world. Uh, but that's not the case today. Today, that role is fulfilled by China and to a lesser extent, Russia, when it comes to energy and communities. Um, we often forget that Russia is actually the world's largest exporter of oil, even ahead of Saudi Arabia. Many people don't don't know that. So. If you place yourself in the shoes of, um, of the leader of a sensible country, you have like this nuclear war going on and you need to decide which camp you're going to join. Um, and there is one camp that manufactures virtually all the essential goods that your people need to survive. Um, and your energy, your fertilizers, the commodities that feed your own industry and so on and so forth. On the other side, gives you Netflix on Facebook, <laughs> So, <laughs> right? Uh, so it's not exactly a hard choice. Um, but then there is something else that, that's crucially important. I'm not sure if you remember the so-called Long Telegram uh, written by George Cannon, um, a U.S. official at the, at the beginning of the First Cold War, uh, in which he detailed the U.S. strategy for, for the Cold War. An uh, an essential ingredient of uh, his strategy was what he called the spiritual vitality of the U.S. and the West in general. He he wrote, uh, and I quote him here, uh, the United States needs to create among the peoples of the world generally the impression of a country which knows what it wants, which is coping successfully with the problems of its internal life and with the responsibilities of a world power, and which has a spiritual vitality capable of holding its own among the major idol- ideological currents of the time. And where is that spiritual vitality today? Uh, spiritually speaking, the West is in the worst place it's been in for, you know, maybe 200 years, and it's critically important. It's impossible to win a war of influence without this. Um, so. All this to say that it would be an immense mistake by the West to launch a new Cold War today. Um, it's arguably already done so, uh, but it needs to reverse course because it's, it's virtually guaranteed that it won't pan out like the first one did. And it's also beyond insane to have a Cold War, uh, when the world has never faced such serious global challenges like climate change or pandemics, uh, which, you know, by definition, because they're global, uh, can only be Tackled together as a a planet.
0: Well, yeah, very well said. And, you know, before I ask you other questions, I was just curious if perhaps, you know, I think it's really interesting. You are, of course, French, but you live in China. You live in Shanghai. No
1: no one is perfect.
0: No, (laughs) I mean, I'm also American, so I hear you.
1: But, you know,
0: if you could maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, what brought you to China? And, you know, what do you do there? And how did you become so political on these issues?
1: uh sure so uh, um i mean I'm, I'm an entrepreneur um i've o- o- always been I've, I've never worked for someone else so um when i graduated together with my wife who is chinese um in, in europe we created a company Um we did the whole startup thing so we got uh you know uh, vc funding and uh we grew very fast and so on and so forth uh, the company was called house trip and um and then, uh, we had an exit. We sold the company to, uh, TripAdvisor. And um, we found ourselves, um, you know, being able to start a new chapter of our life. And at that point, we wanted children. And we were wondering what was the best place in the world to raise our children. And um, because we're uh, a mixed couple, uh, me being French and her being Chinese, uh, we wanted our children to be raised in both cultures, uh, to understand both their cultures as natives. That that was very important for us. Um, China was pretty much the only place where you could do that because uh, in China, of course, that Chinese culture around them, but they can also go to French schools, so they can effectively be raised as natives in both cultures, whereas you, you can't do the same thing in France. You don't have Chinese schools in France. Uh, so, so that's, that's frankly the main reason why, um, why, why we came to China and that was eight years ago. And the reason why I became so political, um, is, uh, simply because, um, when I arrived in China and when I started, you you know, really understanding the country, um, I, I, I became simply outraged, uh, that almost nothing that was told about the country was, uh, in, 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 in the mainstream media was in fact true. Uh, a lot of it was, you know, straight lies or, uh, gross exaggeration, uh, a lot of prejudices and so on. And, you know, I, I it, it was simply, uh, um, a feeling of outrage that I had to express um uh, I, I I had to express something, so yeah, that makes
0: but, sense no that makes that yeah. makes perfect sense. It's like the reality you're seeing is just not what is being portrayed, especially as yeah. this cold war becomes more uh insane as the years yeah. go on um yeah. but you know that's actually that's actually really interesting uh on like a personal level, but just kind of to move back to the broader issues here, then you know. Every week or so, I notice that the mainstream media, as you say, is always kind of, you know, portraying things in the wrong way. You'll see a piece published, whether it's in The New York Times or The Washington Post or wherever, where they'll they'll be like pondering why so much of the already food insecure global South just won't get on board with U.S. and European policies and, and sanctioning and cutting Russia off from the rest of the world. You know, as if like, well you know so what if we're talking about one of the worlds in Russia here, one of the world's biggest producers of grain, a fertilizer. It's like as if it isn't obvious why these countries, especially countries that already have food insecurity problems, wouldn't want to cut off one of their major trading partners with these very vital uh, commodities. Um, yeah. And of course, meanwhile, there's this kind of like almost PR campaign. Uh, by Western officials and Western media to just blame Russia alone for all this growing food insecurity across the global South. Again, as if the sanctions policies have nothing to do with it. And even though, you know, now we see the White House as privately um, saying that, yes, in fact, you know, they understand now that perhaps cutting off, you know, or cutting off fertilizer uh, is causing a supply shock. It could be driving up food prices. Maybe this is a bad thing for the developing world. At the same time, the White House has been warning countries, particularly African countries, uh, not to purchase, you know, what they're calling stolen Ukrainian grain from Russia. <clears throat> and, you know, all that to say, how do you understand the growing food crisis as well as these food shortages? And how do you believe they relate to the sanctions on Russia?
1: Uh, well, it's um I, I haven't read studied this topic in in depth but what, what you just uh, mentioned i think is very noteworthy um, uh, i think so, three days ago I, I noticed that the white house um, said that they would prevent the sale of stolen uh, grain from ukraine um, and it's it's very important to see how they define stolen uh, because i strongly suspect that they define it as all the wheat harvested from Russian-occupied regions in Ukraine. Uh, But the thing is that Russia occupies some of the regions in Ukraine that produce the most wheat. Uh, And of course, Ukraine is one of the biggest wheat producers in the world. So effectively, this will mean that the U.S. is preventing the sale of wheat from one of the places in the world that produces the most wheat, uh, in the middle of a global food crisis, uh, which is unconscionable, uh, when you think about it. So, I think, uh, when I'm far from a specialist of, um, you know, uh, f- food and, uh, And um, the dynamics around that, I think, um, you know, common sense dictates that the the policy should be to set enmities aside and facilitate the distribution of food, no matter the, the origin, because there are simply too many lives at stake. And it's not something to gamble with in order to own Russia.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, it is amazing too, because obviously like no one, except for maybe Russia is saying that Russia is blameless here. (laughs) I mean, obviously they did start a war. So like they, they, you know, blame can be placed on Russia for the consequences of that. But yeah, Yeah. just the, the level of just pointing fingers while pretending like your sanctions aren't causing any problems is so absurd. And I raise that to say, like you said, just stating the obvious, right? You have that's what you did. You stated the obvious. You in all of your tweets are really just very nuanced stating the obvious. What you've written is very nuanced stating the obvious. Very reasonable takes here. Yet you were recently condemned or you, well, you you've also by the way I want to point out you've condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine as an atrocity like all those caveats have been said. Yet you still ended up on this insane McCarthyist list. This recent one from the University of Calgary, um, that was so bizarre. It included other people's names. too. I'll pull up what that list looks like. But I'm curious if maybe you could tell us a little bit about this list. What was your yeah. reaction when you saw that your, your Twitter account was included on what they called what Russian influenced uh, people? What were your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, this list is beyond insane. So f- first of all... <laughs> It's quite laughable for me because I have uh, no relationship with Russia. I've never been there. I have no emotional attachment to the country whatsoever. Uh, Here it is,
0: I, by the way. Here's the list. Yeah, it's very. Uh, I don't even understand it, by the way. It's like table one, table two. Anyways, yeah, you're at yeah. the bottom of table two. But anyways, please continue.
1: Yeah, so uh so it's just bizarre. Uh and, and you just need to look at some of the other people who are on it together with me. So you have like Glenn Greenwald, uh which yeah. is of course the legendary journalist behind the Snowden Revelation. You have John Pilger, another legendary Australian journalist, you have the famous Aaron Mate, whom I guess you know everyone knows among your audience. Uh so yeah, it's uh it, it, just that question, what this list <laughs> is uh, and then in the study the i don't know if you can put that up they, they made this hilarious graph with on one side the set of the truth uh with uh, let me see if i can find that i just these are some images that people tweeted let's see
0: I don't know if I have that one, but you can. Keep, yeah, it, you can, yeah. It,
1: it, it doesn't matter. So, so they had this graph with uh, on one side the side of the truth with only four people. On uh, those four people were Biden, uh, Trudeau, Michael McFaul, with, with, with the former. <laughs> oh God. With the former U.S. ambassador in Russia on the Ukraine newspaper Kiev Independence. so that's the truth. On the on the other side, the side of the lies where all of us, uh, like Green World, uh, <laughs> I mean, this, this says it's all, right? Um, um, when you look at the methodology, what they did is they identified five narratives, which if you pro- propagated them, uh, would land you on the dark side. Uh, so four of those narratives were uh, mistrust in liberals, mistrust in institutions and elites, NATO expansion and um, NATO as an aggressor, so basically, if you have a beef with uh, Western military expansion and if you mistrust Western elites to them this means you 're somehow a Putin stooge uh, which is beyond absurd so i mean l- look at who mistrusts uh, institutional elites in the western uh, in, in in the west today it 's almost everyone uh, so right. that, that that, that that doesn't make you a criminal agent, uh, Agent, it makes you just a normal constituted human being. So yeah, this, this whole thing is just, yeah. It's Ridiculous. No, I mean, I think
0: it goes, yeah, no, and it, it, it goes along with, I think, a lot of what we're seeing these days with like anybody who challenges these sort of like mainstream narratives, even a little bit, uh, particularly when it comes to Russia and China uh is automatically labeled as being some sort of like no. nefarious stooge for an authoritarian regime who must be being paid or is like a useful idiot um, mm-hmm. and it's so it's so juvenile and it's just the way to like na- put you know say oh you're it's just name calling it's name calling to shut people up attacking reputations to shut people up no. but it's so alarming how many people are buying into it because it is, it is like this like cold war hysteria um but you know you also recently pointed out something that I thought was really interesting which was this quote from Zbigniew Brzezinski who was of course you know at the State Department under Jimmy Carter um is like a you know was like a foreign policy elite um whose ideas are still very much present in American policy around the world uh and his the quote that you highlighted was this is from Zbigniew Brzezinski not you <laughs> but the most dangerous scenario for America would be an anti hegemonic coalition united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, you know, isn't this what's happening today? Like that is, you, you actually do have a growing coalition of countries. And of course, here I'm thinking of countries like China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba. These are countries that have almost nothing in common ideologically. Like maybe Venezuela and Cuba do, but certainly. Iran, Russia, I mean, these places all have very different forms of government, very different economic systems, very different ideologies that form the basis of their societies. Um, but they have been brought together by, a sh- by shared grievances, particularly when it comes to issues of sanctions and just, you know, U.S. aggression towards them in various ways. So I guess, you know, my question is, how does this relate, do you think, this quote I just mentioned from Zbigniew Brzezinski, to the policy goal of preventing this like Eurasian integration of Europe with Russia and China, which is really, at the end of the day, what this entire U.S. policy around Ukraine, around Taiwan, is all about, right? Is to prevent mm-hmm. this natural integration of these various geographic areas of the world. Um, which, of course, Zbigniew Brzezinski was a staunch opponent of. So yeah, how does everything I just said relate to that US goal of preventing Eurasian integration?
1: Yeah, so so this uh this most dangerous scenario that uh that Brzezinski was uh, speaking about is is pretty much exactly what is happening. Uh even a small child can understand this is is it a smart move to antagonize the largest countries in the world simultaneously. Uh of course not. It's uh to be frank, it's it's, it's very foolish um, and the relationship between the West and, and Russia is at this stage beyond repair. I think it's fair to say, probably for decades, the relationship between the West and China is not as bad. But China is profoundly hurt by the attitude of the West. And there is very little trust left, if, if not none. Um, and of course, China and Russia now have a, what they call no limits uh, friendship. Uh, actually, let me quote you the exact words of the joint statement that they released a couple of months back, uh, which is friendship between the two states has no limits, there are no forbidden areas of cooperation. So it's an extremely strong statement. Uh, but that's not it. You have Iran as well, for instance. In, in fact, uh, Brzezinski's actual quote is um, the most dangerous scenario would be a grand coalition of China, Russia, and perhaps Iran. So, mm. yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's not breaking news that Iran isn't exactly on the side of the U.S. Um, so, th- th- this is all a consequence of, uh, American hubris, uh, frankly. I mean, the, the arrogance of its actions is, is breathtaking when, when you think about it, waging endless wars all, all over the planet. And um, when it's not directly at war, it engages in extremely hostile, Meddling and interference, like it constantly does with China uh, or with Russia or Iran, for that matter, as well as countless of other countries, maybe even all countries. Uh, so you need to be quite deluded to believe that th- th- this won't, in time, create immense resentment and grievances. It's, it's basic physics: for every action, there is an opposite reaction. So it's totally predictable that uh, as their victims pile up, uh, they will at one point congregate and say no more. Um, President Clinton, uh, whom I I don't often quote, (laughs) of of, of, of all people, he actually said something uh, quite smart about this once uh, after he stopped being president. Uh, in, In a 2003 speech at Yale University, he said that if the U.S. could conceive of a world where they will no longer be number one, it was in their interest to create a world with rules and partnerships and habits of behavior that we would like to live in um, as as a relatively smaller power, as number one, number two, uh, as number two, number three, or or, or even less. But they never tried to do this. Instead, they doubled down on hegemony, uh, making up on changing the rules as, as they went along. So, so that benefited them. Uh, that's what they famously called the rules-based order. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, now we're, we're almost in that world. In fact, we're probably already in that world since China is arguably already number one, like, like we spoke about earlier. And since the U.S. didn't create a multipolar world order in which they could be a comfortable number two or number three, where well, the result is that others are more, most likely going to take the initiative to to create that new world order themselves, it, it just makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is shooting yourself in the foot, but that's what yeah. empires do. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, you're talking about this hubris and these this, like, delusional thinking, I mean, I think that one... One area where this has certainly been the case has been with Taiwan, especially since Biden, I mean, since Biden became president, he has said, I think at this point, three times, although every time he says it, then, you know, the White House has to walk it back. But he said that the U.S. will intervene militarily if China invades Taiwan. And then we saw in recent months, there was this Politico article that revealed that the U.S. is actually encouraging the Taiwanese government to emulate Ukraine for a future war with China, which sounds just absolutely horrible. Like, why would you encourage any country to emulate Ukraine? Ukraine's being destroyed because of that policy right now. Um, and then, you know, you had mentioned to me earlier, like uh, about this quote from Zelensky, where he was quoted in, in the Washington Post as supposedly having said that we, there should be a war in Taiwan. This is an article, of course, by jo- by Josh Rogan, what you pointed out to me was actually like a misquote of Zelensky yep. and he wasn't actually saying that. Uh, so in that case, you know, not surprising from Josh Rogan, he's sort of known to, uh, to be just like constantly warmongering in all his pieces and do whatever it takes to get there. But that all that aside, you know, why is this so this policy, this growing uh, encouragement of some sort of war over Taiwan with China? Why is this so dangerous? And do you think that the war in Ukraine is making a war in Taiwan over Taiwan more or less likely?
1: Um, so first of all, we always need to come back to the history of Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, which was part of China, was stolen by Japan and colonized in the end of the 19th century during the so-called century of humiliation. Then, when Allies won the Second World War against Japan, and China was part of the Allies, uh, Taiwan was retaken by China. But then there was this civil war between the Communists on one side, led by Mao, and the KMT on the other side, led by Chiang Kai-shek, who was nicknamed kashmai Check by the Americans for his notorious corruption. Um, and the Communists, of course, won the Civil War in 1949, uh, despite the KMT having the support of the Americans. And the remnants of the KMT retreated to Taiwan as their last stand. Um, that's basically been the situation ever since. Uh, for 30 years, until 1979, the US still recognized the KMT as the official government over the whole of China. Uh, the Communists just happened to control a small 95% of the territory of the country. Um, but, then in ni- but then in 1979, there was the famous Nixon-Kissinger agreement to switch diplomatic relationship, where the government in Beijing became the, the one government recognized as a uh, legitimate over the whole of China, uh, Taiwan included. And during this negotiation, the core ask by the government in Beijing was over Taiwan is the very foundation of the relationship with the US. We agree to be in a relationship with you if and only if you recognize us as the sole legitimate government of the whole of China and you consider Taiwan as a province of China. And the condition on the other side was, yes, we agree, uh, but this reunification thing, don't count on it for now. The KMT government remains in place in Taiwan. We won't recognize Taiwan as a country. We won't encourage its independence, but it's also de facto uh, won't be ruled by Beijing. Now, to come back to your your question, what Biden is doing is effectively ending the status quo established about 40 years ago, on um, which benefited both the mainland and Taiwan hugely. I mean, look at how they rose uh, both uh, since. China has always been clear that it's committed to peaceful reunification, uh, but that it would intervene militarily for one reason, uh, if Taiwan declared or if it's uh, decisively moved towards independence. And what Biden did uh, with his pledge to defend Taiwan militarily, uh, um, which, as you pointed out, is not something he said once, but three times. Uh, and, and that's the first time a US president makes such a commitment since 1979. And what this does, in effect, is give a green light uh, to the Taiwanese to declare independence because the US has their back; they will protect them if they if they do so with the most powerful military force on on earth. Uh, so that's quite an encouragement. And um, of course, it's an amazingly dangerous game to to play. Uh, for China, Taiwan is absolutely non-negotiable because it is so symbolic in so many respects. Uh First, it's a it's an incredibly brutal civil war that was never allowed to end. And second, Taiwan is the last wound from the famous century of emulation, the territory stolen from China by Japan, which was, of course, China's worst tormentor during, during that period. So for these reasons, China will never, uh, ever uh, allow Taiwan to become independent. It's simply un- unthinkable. So with all that being said, uh, sorry, a bit of a long introduction. No, no, no. It's, a,
0: it's an, no. it's an important history. I'm glad that you summarized that all for us because most people aren't aware of it. But please continue.
1: So, yeah. To, to come back to your uh, uh, question, uh, does the war in Ukraine make uh, uh, make a war in Taiwan uh, uh, more or less likely? I think it's uh, it makes it uh, reasonably to make it less likely. Uh, why? Uh, firstly, because the war in Ukraine, uh, revealed the tool set that the well, the, the, the West would likely use to defend Taiwan. So um, basically what they did in, in Ukraine. So fight China to the last Taiwanese, supply Taiwan with unlimited weaponry and apply extreme financial sanctions on China. But this revelation in and of itself, uh, decreases the risk of war, uh, because Uh, It's obvious now that the West is almost as much a victim of the the sanctions on Russia as Russia itself, uh, if not more, like like we we discussed earlier. And this is with Russia, an economy which is 10 times smaller than China. Uh, So if that's the economic backlash you get from sanctioning Russia... Can you even begin to imagine what would be the consequences of similar actions on China, which is like the literal factory of the world? So that's a very strong motivation not to encourage Taiwan to, to move towards independence. Also, um, you know, folks in Taiwan and on in the neighborhood, they saw what happened to Ukraine on the region. Uh, and like you said, who will look at that and want to find themselves in, in the same situation? Uh, in fact, many countries in Asia, like Singapore, for instance, have been vocal that they saw Europe as a counter example of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've seen that it's a very bad idea to foment tension with a great power in the, in the neighborhood. So, so Taiwan, both from its people and its neighbors, is, is bound to receive a lot of pressure to maintain the status quo and avoid moving towards, towards independence. Um, of course, as Biden, apparently suggested. uh, There is the likelihood that the U.S. wouldn't act like in Ukraine, but this time will defend Taiwan directly, uh, fight alongside them. Um, But uh, before the war in Ukraine, U.S. military strategists pointed out that Taiwan was indefensible militarily for the U.S. They systematically lose every war game simulation they make on this. And The war in Ukraine is bound to make a loss even more likely uh, because there is a considerable amount of uh, US military resources on focus right now on Ukraine on two front wars are of course much harder to win. So again, this is a reason why the US uh, uh, shouldn't encourage they want to trigger a conflict in which they will need to get involved, because uh, that will mean a military loss for them. Uh, but frankly, I don't believe the U.S. will get involved militarily. Uh, one argument used in Ukraine is that they are not going in because they want to avoid uh, a direct war between nuclear powers, which is a pretty good reason. Uh, <laughs> so the, the Ukraine will confirm this red line and it is unclear why this red line will be broken in Taiwan and not in Ukraine, when Taiwan isn't even officially recognized as an independent country by anyone. And therefore, China moving in um, wouldn't even be an invasion according to, to international law. So those are all the lo- logical reasons why the war in Ukraine makes a conflict in Taiwan less likely. But the big question is whether um, the, the U.S. and um, the West in general is still capable of, uh, of reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are the people being so stupid as to trigger a war like that? I hope yeah. not. Um, But, you know, as this is happening over China, there's something interesting happening around the world, which is the way that China is viewed versus the way that the U.S. is viewed. And, you know, I don't live in the U.S. anymore. So, like, I've noticed this for a very long time. Of course, it's very country specific. But in a lot of the world, the U.S. is viewed as an aggressive, you know, an aggressive player, even by people who like the U.S. Uh It's a very they view it as somewhat of a destructive force. Or it's not a destructive force, as a force that when it goes to other countries, the U.S. tends to place conditions on its partnership with those countries. Whereas China has a much different relationship um, with many countries, particularly in the global south. And I think this is reflected in uh, this uh, new poll that was reported by Bloomberg uh, in recent days that China has actually overtaken the U.S. as the foreign power seen by African youth as having the biggest positive influence, 76% of young Africans across 15 countries named China as a foreign power with a positive influence on their lives, compared with 72% for the U.S. And that's actually down for the U.S. It used to be higher, I think, two years ago, and uh, how the U.S. was viewed. So why do you think that is the case? Why do you think there's such, there's there's a growing disparity? and how people in certain countries may view the U.S. versus how they view China?
1: Um, so f- first, I think it's because China is simply not the West. It's uh, it's a global south country like, like them, On um, a global south country which, A, n- never colonized them, and B uh, managed to extirpate itself out of poverty through its own own hard work. Uh, so in many ways, it is a positive model on, on the country towards which they have less resentment, uh, as opposed to Western countries, which have inflicted, uh, you know, untold suffering on Africa with colonization, slavery, and even still today there is a lot of neo-colonization going on. Um, the second reason is probably infrastructure. China isn't paying for the resources it buys from Africa with cash that often benefits the population very little, uh, but by building infrastructure that benefits everyone. So that means that in the eyes of Africans, there are very visible, tangible benefits to working with China, like the road they drive on, the stadium they watch games in, their train stations, and so on and so forth. And lastly, like you said, one aspect is that China is all business, uh, no lecturing. The West will always speak to non-Western nations from a position of superiority with a a frankly patronizing savior complex. Um, And I believe this uh, this lecturing is increasingly inaudible and unacceptable to uh, countries like countries in Africa who just want to find their own way build their own civilization and become countries that fit their own values and traditions. Um, all the more because the West is less and less seen as a model uh, itself. Like yeah. why tell us we're less good than you and we need to change to become more like you when things are clearly not working so well for you? <laughs> um, yeah. And China does nothing of that. It never tries to convert people to becoming Chinese. Uh, the very idea of that is like laughable to any Chinese, like, <laughs> <laughs> Chinese people are Chinese and no one else can, can be Chinese. <laughs> uh, so there is z- zero pro- pro- proselytism uh, in Chinese culture, wh- wh- which I reckon is, uh, you know, uh, very much part of, uh, of the reason why, uh, why people in Africa see China as a more benign, uh, power than, uh, than the U.S.
0: Yeah, and China also tends to like build stuff, right? Like it's, yeah. that's another thing too, they build infrastructure, whereas the U.S. doesn't do, the U.S. doesn't build infrastructure anywhere, unless it's like to build a bigger embassy. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's never... Or military never base. Like, Exactly. We're a military base. And just to add to this view, or the view, I guess, maybe not of China, but views inside China. I think this is interesting, too. And you, you actually did a nice Twitter thread on this uh, recently. There's this fascinating study that was released, I think, last week by the Alliance of Democracies Foundation. Which, as you pointed out, was actually founded by a former NATO Secretary General. Yep. So you can believe what they say. <laughs> it's okay. What they say is okay. It's not Russian propaganda. Um, yeah. No, they're, they,
1: they're, they're, they're in the camp of the good.
0: Exactly. They're on the side of good. Um, yeah. But this this um, this pretty lengthy like uh, set of questions that were asked yeah. in countries around the world found that of all places that where they like went and polled people. It was people in China that perceived their country as the most democratic. Uh, and it was like so different than, you know, and we don't consider in the West, at least, we don't consider China a traditional democracy, like the way that the Western countries are democracies. Um, and it was just interesting because it was like people inside of China mostly thought that their country is in fact a democracy, whereas you had the opposite response from many people in countries like the US and France and all of these Western countries that we consider to be democracies, so can you tell us I guess a little bit about what you found interesting, perhaps about the results from this study um, and how is it you know like how did you like what were the biggest differences you saw, and what do you why do you think in China so many people view their country as being a democracy versus in other places like the u s
1: um yeah, this study is fascinating because it really calls into question, into question what democracy actually is. Uh, so yeah, in the study I think the five countries that view, view themselves as the most democratic in the world were in you know, order, China, Switzerland, Vietnam, India and Norway, and some countries which claim to be shining examples of, democracy, of democracies like, like uh, the US or France, my country, um, are actually not seen by their own people as, as democratic. Uh, less than half of Americans and less than half of French actually believe that uh, their country is democratic. And when you look at the details of the study, whether people believe they live in a democracy or not, uh, essentially boils down to three big factors. Um, one, uh, whether the government is perceived as serving a minority or the majority. Uh, two, whether people believe in the country think that everyone has equal rights. And three, whether government policy is aligned with what people want. Um, when, you, when you consider this, this explains much better why people in China believe they, they live in a democracy. Uh, so on the minority versus majority aspect of, of things, if you look at it, the two big initiatives of the Chinese government over the past 10 years Have been poverty alleviation on clamping down on corruption. Uh, And you could add things like infrastructure development or even zero COVID. All this is clearly done for the greater good, not to serve the interests of of the few. Um, And on on believing that everyone has equal rights, uh, the the clampdown on corruption also probably helped with that. Uh, just recently, they found a top official who would give an insider trading tips to his close family members. Uh, the guy was given the death penalty. Uh, mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, with, with reprieve, which means he, he, he won't actually be, be killed and, uh, and he will, uh, b- but he will have life in prison. Um, meanwhile, you've probably heard of Paul Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband. Was been surprisingly successful at trading. We're one of the best traders. <laughs>
0: he must oh, just have like a natural skill or yeah, something, like, right? Like, like-, like,
1: <laughs> like a, a, a real genius. Um, and um, nothing happened there. So yeah. all this participates to create an image. Uh, in the case of China, of a state that is extremely rigorous on accountability by top officials. And in the case of the US, of a state that's, uh, you know, to say the least. Uh, much less keen on accountability. Uh, And China has also notoriously held its billionaire class accountable. And it's probably the only state in the world that does that. Uh, So again, it gives the image of a country where no one is too powerful or too rich uh, to avoid accountability. And the most interesting part of the study is on elections. Uh, What's interesting is that many countries don't see themselves as democracies. Um, many of the countries that don't see themselves as democracies believe that they are free and fair elections. Like in France, people say, yes, we have free and fair elections, but we, we don't have democracies. So it shows that deep down, um, even if, when you ask people, they often say that democracy is about elections, deep down, they don't actually believe that. They know that to be a democracy, there needs to be much more than the simple act of, of voting. Um, it all comes back to me to, to the famous Abraham Lincoln sentence, of the people, by the people, for the people. Elections is only encompassed in the by the people bit, but if you can't elect true representatives of the people, would then act for the people, then there is, there is no point in, in elections, frankly. And in the US, for instance, there are, there are several studies, uh, like one made by Princeton in 2014 that show that the government clearly doesn't act for the people. In fact, that, that Princeton study concluded that what average citizens want has, I quote, little or no influence on, on US policy, which is, which is crazy. So um, all in all, yes, it, it was a fascinating uh, study which raises very deep questions and will call for profound governance changes in a certain number of countries if they actually listen to to their people.
0: Right. Um, and that was that Princeton study I think you mentioned basically suggests that the U.S. is actually an oligarchy. Uh, where muddied interest control basically everything. Um, no. I wanna. I just have. I know I've taken a lot of your time, so I just have a few more questions here. And this is, Good. I guess, the most controversial for last, or the most controversial topic for last, and that's of course the Good. topic of Xinjiang. Um, no. And you know, of course, I think everybody probably who watches this program is familiar with the name Adrian Zenz. Of course, no. this is the German researcher who's been accused of being a fraud. In some cases, has been proven to be a fraud. Um, but, you know, regardless, Adrian Zenz uh, has been embraced by the Western mainstream for pushing the whole Xinjiang genocide narrative, uh, despite major holes in his claims and research. Um And of course, he was recently in the news again because he wrote a new journal article uh, based on what has rever- been referred to as the Xinjiang Police Files, which was published in the Journal of the European Association for Chinese Studies, um, last month. And so many, you know, like I mentioned, many of our viewers will be familiar with Adrian Zenz, but for those who maybe aren't, can you explain why this person might not be the best source on these things? And then perhaps, perhaps we can get to uh, the issues in his latest report.
1: Sure. So, first of all, Adrian Zenz works for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. <laughs> so already, um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so what, what that's, uh, what that is, is an anti-communist propaganda outlet created by an act of the US Congress. So yeah, already at that stage, it should be clear that we're not exactly do, dealing with an impartial actor here. <laughs> um, and also, like, like you said, he's, he's been caught several times being extremely manipulative with this data. Uh, the best example is probably when, um, he, he, he was trying to argue that there was White, white, widespread sterilization taking place in Xinjiang. He made the claim uh, that, uh, and I will quote him here, 80% of all net-added IUD. IUD is intra-uterine um, devices, so to- uh, Birth control, uh, yeah. Yeah, birth control, exactly. So 80% of all net-added IUD placements in China were performed in Xinjiang in 2018. Um, and any normal person will understand this as whoa, like 80% of all IUDs in China uh, in 2018 were placed on women in Xinjiang, which would be shocking because you mm-hmm. know Xinjiang is is one of the biggest provinces of China, but 80% is still a, a crazy high number. And in fact, that's the way most media and politicians will spread this from uh, from Zens understood it on the way they reported on, on it. But it was a trick. Uh, notice that he said net added uh, IUD placements are not simply IUD placements. The, the net added bit is a statistical sleigh of hand. It's a totally meaningless number. When you calculate the actual percentage of IUDs that uh, in 2018 were placed on women in Xinjiang is just 8%, uh, which is 10 times less. Uh, so he keeps doing tricks like this over and over again. Another one is that one big proof, uh, for the genocide that he always pushes is that Xinjiang birth rates dropped, uh, rapidly at some point, which is true, but there is a very logical explanation for it, which he always leaves out, which means he lies by omission. Uh, the thing about Uyghurs and all ethnic minorities in China, for that matter, is that they are never subject to the one-child policy. Only hands uh, where the one-child policy was dropped in in uh, uh, was dropped, and then in 2017, the same family planning p- policy was uh, made universal for all ethnicities. Uh, it became two children per couple for people living in cities, three for people living in uh, rural areas. So from that point onward, everyone in China, regardless of their ethnicity, was treated the same. So Uyghurs went from effectively being Allowed to have as many children as, as they wanted, uh, to, to having restrictions on the hands went from being allowed to have only one child, uh, to being allowed to have two or three. Um, and guess what happened? Uh, we birth rates dropped, uh, to become the same as those of the hand, uh, yeah. which makes perfect sense, right? The-
0: so on this topic, of course, of the, of the report that just came out, um, there was also some new drama. Over, the UN Human Rights Chief, she had to resign from her post following a big backlash over a visit to Xinjiang by essentially the UN. She was leading it, where it seems, you know, whatever she witnessed may refute claims perhaps from Western countries and their NGOs and people like Adrian Zenz of genocide. So what are your thoughts on this particular resignation?
1: So, I mean, I'm, uh, I obviously don't know the ins and outs of the reason Bachelet, uh, Bachelet uh, resigned, um, but one must admit that it's an interesting coincidence. So she goes to Xinjiang. Uh She was the first UN human rights uh, chief to do so, to finally see with her own eyes what's going on. I believe she stayed seven days in China. And finally, at the end of her visit, she... Reported thing in a way which I think can be characterized as balanced. Uh, so on the one hand, she said that China had uh, you know some impressive achievements in terms of human rights, like poverty alleviation. It's not nothing. They lifted 800 million out of poverty. Um, and she said she went to Xinjiang. She visited the prison. And um, she visited. Uh, vocational education and training center, uh, which is what the Western media call re-education camps. Um, she basically framed China's implementation of, the, of, of, of those, uh, those centers as um, policies to counter terrorism and radicalism, which is what the Chinese have been saying all along. So it arguably shows that she believes the, the Chinese take on the rationale for this, this program. But, um, she wasn't all praised. She said she had concerns, uh, about, uh, on, on, I will quote her here, like the lack of independent judicial oversight of the operation of the program, the reliance by law enforcement officials on 15 indicators to determine the tendency towards violent extremism, and so on and so forth. So, so she had a list of, you know, um, human rights, uh, concerns. Um, so, Yeah, fairly balanced text. She also said that the the Chinese government assured her that the the centers had been uh, all closed down, uh, which is something that several Uyghurs here in China told me as well, um, which the Chinese government has been saying for a couple of years. Um, What she didn't say, though, is that uh, genocide was going on, uh, Mm -hmm. which means that most likely uh, she doesn't believe in it. And... um, and frankly, for anyone who knows a bit about Xinjiang and is a bit intellectually honest, uh it's it's frankly an insane thing to believe. Um so what do you know? Uh after a visit and after she said all that, uh all the US governmented um, uh all the US government affiliated NGOs uh were calling for a resignation because obviously they were annoyed that she hadn't legitimated the genocide narrative that they, they had been peddling. And a few days after, she does resign. Uh, so it is a strange coincidence.
0: <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. And then I'm curious, you know, since you are in China, you're how is the accusation of genocide in Xinjiang perceived in China as far as, you know, the people you've talked to?
1: So I think... Pretty much everyone I've met here, uh, sees it as like the weaponization of human rights, so the tool to fight China and to justify hostile actions against, against China. So, we, we will do this new law because of Xinjiang, we will do those new sanctions because of Xinjiang and, and so on and so forth. And look, I'm not saying that Uyghurs had an easy time in China, those, uh, you know, training centers did exist and Xinjiang became a province with, uh, very intense security measures, you know, cameras and checkpoints everywhere, every knife in the province had to be recorded with the police, even kitchen knives, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so the Chinese are not kidding with terrorism. They, they really went all in to secure the place after after the terrorist attacks. And it worked. I mean zero terrorist attacks since uh, since the measure. But there is a massive difference between heavy security measures and, and the genocide. Uh the Uyghurs are still are still there. Um let me give you a very telling quote by uh Dr. Michael Pillsbury, who is the architect of Trump's China policy. Uh and on, on those genocide accusations arose when he was part of the of the administration, and even he doesn't believe in it. He says, and I quote him here, nobody has found a dead Uyghur who was killed through some kind of deliberate mechanism. In other words, he doesn't believe a single Uyghur has been killed. So how on earth can you call that a genocide? And what people don't realize is that there are Uyghurs all over China, not not just in Xinjiang. I've been personally going to the same Uyghur restaurant in the center of Shanghai for over 15 years. The place has not changed. It's still managed and staffed by the same Uyghur family. I spoke with them about what the West was saying and on, on they laughed about the genocide accusation. They knew about those those uh training centers, they knew some people who had been in them. Uh, but they also confirmed to me that they, they believed um at this stage they they'd all been closed down. So to answer your question, I think um no other accusation has hurt the Chinese more deeply than this one. Uh, it's it's a pretty big deal to accuse people of committing genocide, which is the most yeah. serious crime on earth. And um, the the effect, as far as I can see, is uh, immense resentment towards the West for daring to make those types of accusation, which no one in China believes is is grounded in truth. And uh, especially this is China, a country where you never, ever make uh, negative accusation against someone in public unless you want to cement a very deep uh, hostility towards you. It's, it's uh, the famous concept of face. You always say negative things in, in private. So if, if the West wanted to fuel Chinese nationalism and animosity towards them, uh, it was the, the single best thing to do. But <laughs> but if they wanted to induce change in china to make the chinese people open to what they had to say uh, it was the the single worst thing to do
0: yeah you know and there's something so incredibly um ironic about uh, uh, officials from a country that in response to a massive terrorist attack launched a global war and yeah. literally destroyed several countries are actually still in the process of destroying some of those countries as a result of an attack that happened, you know, over 20 years ago now. Um Yet, you know, you can't, I mean, it's not even comparable. Like whatever, no. you know, whatever China's reaction may have, have been to attacks, whether right or wrong, it does not compare to the level of, the level of terror that the U.S. inflicted around the world because of an attack in the U.S. It's just, it, it really is mind boggling that the same people behind mm-hmm. those policies can, then go and say that, oh, how dare China do anything in response and they're overreacting. And maybe they are, but just coming from the US, wow. I want to thank you for coming on and giving me an hour of your time and going through all thank these various much. topics. I really appreciate it. Is where can people follow you?
1: Uh so on Twitter. Uh I'm uh uh Arnold Bertrand. Uh so maybe I should spell that because uh Maybe. i'll put it i'll,
0: I'll add it i'll okay, add it, yeah, it, so yeah. it in the description so people can find it in the description and you are really quite a prolific tweeter and you're an important yeah. account because i I, I, I like... tweet.
1: if you listen to my wife i tweet way too much and she's probably right
0: <laughs> well no no i actually appreciate it because you like i actually find a uh, news items that i might have not otherwise seen from your twitter account so i appreciate all those tweets Thanks. but thank you so much for joining me and i hope we can have you on at some point in the future to yeah, talk about anger. even more
1: great great